I, I want to say at the outset, I am not going to do justice to Billy Graham in about 45 to 50 minutes. But we're just going to scratch the scratches on the surface. Um, you know, there's books that have been, big books that have been written about him. He has an autobiography. <clears throat> so um, I, we're just going to hit the highlights here. Um, and I wanted to start off by saying that we need to put his life and ministry into the context of American evangelicalism as it was in the post-Civil War period and in the early 20th century. So to give us a little bit of context for this, let's look at this brief timeline. In 1896, Billy Sunday begins leading revivals. We've talked about Billy Sunday, his dynamic uh, preaching style, you know, formerly he was a baseball player, and when he preached, he looked like he was still playing baseball. Uh, certainly entertaining. Um, in 1908, the Federal Council of Churches begins, um, or it forms, and in 1910, the fundamentals begin to be published. In 1912, the social creed of the churches is adopted by mainline churches. And in 1918, Billy Graham is born. Pentecostalism, of course, is developing in this same time period as we've detailed. Uh, but for mainstream churches and denominations, other issues and problems are becoming a focal point. So the Federal Council of Churches, officially the Federal Council of Churches of Christ in America, was an ecumenical association of Christian denominations founded in May of 1908. It represented Anglican, Baptist, Eastern Orthodox, Lutheran, Methodist, Moravian, Oriental Orthodox, Polish National Catholic, Presbyterian, and Reformed denominations emerged with other ecumenical groups in 1950 to form the present-day National Council of Churches. Um, how many people here have heard of the National Council of Churches? Ever heard of it? Okay, this is a big mainline, the term mainline is used, um, and some people might see it as a formation of, again, ecumenical, in other words, drawing from all kinds of different denominations but churches that adhere to um, more liberal, non-evangelical worship styles, preaching styles, uh, theology, and so forth. Now, this council formulated what was called the Social Creed of the Churches in December of 1908. So the idea is that we are concerned with modern issues. Uh, modernist concerns with Americans' industrial problems and the group's emphasis on promoting democracy and social welfare, or the social gospel. And I'm sure many of you have heard that term, the social gospel. And so there was an emphasis in this social creed on equal rights and complete justice for all men in all stations of life. 
And by men, they also mean women as well. In other words, all human beings, equal rights, complete justice, you know, and these groups are still advocating uh, for these things today. Um, so some of this should not sound new. Protection of the worker from dangerous machinery, occupational disease, injuries, and mortality. At this time in American life, uh, factories were dangerous places to work. Abolition of child labor. The regulation of working conditions for women to safeguard the physical and moral health of the community. A living wage as a minimum in every industry. Provision for workers in old age and for injured workers and the eradication of poverty. This social creed came out mm, about 20 years or so before social security came into existence. So for older people, older workers, uh, injuries, occupational hazards, being exposed to dangerous chemicals, all of these things affected workers. There was no protective legislation. And in old age, people were left to either fend for themselves or if they had any family to help them to, to rely on the support of their families. <clears throat> The fundamentalists, on the other hand, were not as concerned with social welfare problems. Oh dear, thank you. I went way forward. Oh, gee. There we go. All right, stay right there. <laughs> so the Northern Presbyterian Church, remember, churches split over the Civil War. So the Northern Presbyterian Church, which is now the Presbyterian Church in the USA, influenced the movement uh, with the definition of the five fundamentals that they published in 1910. The inerrancy of the Bible, the divine nature of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the bodily return of Jesus Christ. So completely different focus on completely different topics as uh, compared with the modernists. Modernists embrace the higher critical method of interpreting the scriptures as opposed to the literalist interpretation adopted by fundamentalists who believe the scriptures to be the, in, the divinely inspired word of God. Modernists embrace Darwinism and the theory of evolution to explain human existence, whereas fundamentalists believed in the literal six-day creation account in Genesis and that man was created directly by God. But both groups were concerned with the problem of alcoholism that plagued Americans of all backgrounds. And this concern on the part of both the fundamentalists and the modernists, and especially the modernist um, approach to the social gospel, eventually led to prohibition. 
Modernists believe social problems could be fixed by legislation and social or government programs, whereas fundamentalists were concerned with proclaiming the gospel as the solution to man's problems. It was in this broader social, political, and religious context that Billy Graham was born in 1918. The fundamentalist modernist controversy would affect his life and ministry as it did the religious and social lives of many Americans in the early 20th century. William Franklin Graham Jr. was born on November 7, 1918 in the downstairs bedroom of his family's farmhouse near Charlotte, North Carolina. Of Scots-Irish descent, he was the eldest of four children born to Morrow and William Franklin Graham Sr. Graham was raised on the family dairy farm with his two younger sisters, Catherine Morrow and Jean, and younger brother, Melvin Thomas. He was raised by his parents in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, which was a very conservative Presbyterian and Reformed Church with Scottish ancestry. And here's some uh, early pictures. Um, oh, okay. Uh, so on the left is, uh, and these are, yeah, you know, they're old pictures, old black and white pictures. But I think you can make out the fact that in the picture on the left um, is a man standing next to a, a he's on a bridge or a fence, next to a fence, something like that. Um, his daughter is standing on top of the fence or bridge uh, post. And Billy is uh, standing next to his father. He only comes up to his father's waist. Um, but this was taken in the 1920s. You know, these are not rich people. Um, when you're poor and cameras are not widely available, to have any type of picture at all is, or photograph is, is you know, something special. Um, and on the right uh, is a picture of Billy Graham's father uh, in, a, in a little wagon. Um, he was barely literate, but he was a very successful dairy farmer. So this is the kind of world that Billy Graham grew up in, very rural, uh, very much like 19th century life would be in rural agricultural America. Billy started to read from an early age and loved to read novels for boys, especially Tarzan. And like Tarzan, he would hang from the trees and give the popular Tarzan yell. <laughs> and according to his father, that yelling led him to become a minister. Okay. Graham was 15 when prohibition ended in December of 1933, and his father forced him and his sister Catherine to drink beer until they became sick. And this experience profoundly affected uh, his views about alcohol and drugs, which of course was that he was really against them. Oops. <clears throat> uh, as, as Billy became older, he, 
he was being drawn to worldly things, movies, things like that. And so he was turned down for membership in a local church youth group. Now, a man who worked on the, on the Graham farm persuaded him to go see the evangelist Mordecai Ham, who was an independent Baptist, uh, who was doing revivals in Charlotte. And so according to his autobiography, Graham was 16 when he was converted uh, during this series of revival meetings that Ham was holding in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1934. After high school, Billy attended Bob Jones College, now Bob Jones University, in 1936 in Greenville, South Carolina. Known for its strict policies, Billy found it too legalistic and rigid. Founded by Bob Jones Sr., an evangelist with a Baptist and Methodist background, Bob Jones College represented an effort by evangelical American Christians to resist modernist developments in higher education, especially the teaching of evolution. And if you think back, this was an issue for Amy Semple McPherson. She'd been exposed to uh, you know, Darwinian theories, evolution, et cetera, and this was you know, something she grappled with as well. Now, Graham was almost expelled, but Bob Jones Sr. warned him not to throw his life away. At best, all you could amount to would be a poor country Baptist preacher somewhere out in the sticks. You have a voice that pulls. God can use that voice of yours. He can use it mightily. In 1937, Graham transferred to the Florida Bible Institute in Temple Terrace, Florida, close to Tampa. And Florida Bible Institute was Baptist. Now, he comes from a Presbyterian background, but he's making the transition to uh, becoming a Baptist. While still a student, Graham preached his first sermon at Bostwick Baptist Church near Palatka, Florida. In his autobiography, Graham wrote of receiving his call to the ministry on the 18th green of the Temple Terrace Golf and Country Club, close to Florida Bible Institute. After being called to the ministry, he would often paddle a canoe to a small island in the Hillsborough River, where he would practice preaching to the birds, alligators, and cypress stumps. In 1939, he was ordained by a group of Southern Baptist clergy at Peniel Baptist Church in Palatka. And in 1940, he graduated with a Bachelor of Theology degree from Florida Bible Institute. It was also during his time in Florida that Graham began his sidewalk crusades. A plaque in Tampa at Franklin and Fortune Streets notes some of Graham's first recipients were derelicts, drunks, and skid row bums. Graham then enrolled in Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. And during his time there, he decided to accept the Bible as the infallible word of God. Now at this point, you would want to stop and go, wait, what? <laughs> he decided to accept the Bible as the infallible word of God. This is how affected he was by the fundamentalist modernist controversy. You know, that this was a question for him personally. While most of us are familiar with Billy Graham as the evangelist who emphasized the Bible as the word of God 
and the constitution of the Christian faith, there was a time in his life when his views about the Bible were different, and he questioned its infallibility. At a retreat in California in 1949, Graham wrestled with some of the liberal ideas about the scriptures that he had encountered in some of the religious circles in which he was moving. A man named Charles Templeton, another ministry candidate who happened to have studied at Princeton, which was becoming more and more liberal and modern, began to question the Bible's infallibility and tried to persuade Graham of this. In Templeton's view, the modern educational disciplines of psychology and sociology would give man the answer to life's problems, not Jesus and the Bible. One night at the retreat, Graham walked out into the woods and set his Bible on a stump, more an altar than a pulpit, and he cried out, Oh God, there are many things in this book I do not understand. There are many problems with it for which I have no solution. There are many seeming contradictions. There are some areas in it that do not seem to correlate with modern science. I can't answer some of the philosophical and psychological questions Chuck and the others are raising. As Graham's grandson Will relates it, and then my grandfather fell to his knees and the Holy Spirit moved in him as he said, Father, I'm going to accept this as thy word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts, and I will believe this to be your inspired word. This point of crisis for Graham marked a new phase for his ministry. He spoke at the retreat with, as one attender put it, an authority that she had not seen from him before. And at this retreat, 400 people gave their lives to Christ. Well, it, sorry. Okay. Uh, and again, this, this retreat occurred in August of 1949. And only a few weeks later, Billy Graham would go on to hold the historic 1949 Los Angeles crusade in a tent erected on the corner of Washington and Hill Streets in LA. Interesting, Amy Semple McPherson was doing a lot in LA in the 20s and 30s, and here Billy Graham is launching a big ministry, a big ministry event, a crusade, evangelistic crusade in Los Angeles. This outreach was scheduled to last three weeks, but instead ran for eight weeks as people packed the Canvas Cathedral. In other words, they put up a, a big tent. And media outlets nationwide began talking about the upstart evangelist. By the time Graham conducted this crusade, he had already graduated from Wheaton with a degree in anthropology and served as the pastor of a local church. While at Wheaton College, Billy met his wife, Ruth McHugh Bell, the Chinese-born daughter of American Presbyterian medical missionaries to China and Korea. Ruth had enrolled at Wheaton College and completed her degree in 1943. And shortly after they graduated, they were married. After Billy served as a pastor in Illinois, the couple settled in Montreat, North Carolina, 
and Billy became an evangelist with Youth for Christ, an evangelistic organization founded in 1940 as an outreach to teenagers in New York City. The Youth for Christ campaign idea spread to Washington, D.C., Detroit, Indianapolis, and St. Louis. In 1944, Tori Johnson, a Baptist minister and pastor of Chicago's Midwest Bible Church, had stayed, staged Chicago Land for Christ and became the most successful advocate of this type of campaign. And Johnson was elected Youth for Christ's first president with Billy Graham as its first full-time evangelist. In 1946, the organization had spread to other countries and became known as Youth for Christ International. Graham took over Johnson's local radio program called Songs in the Night, which was broadcast over a local station in Illinois and predated Youth for Christ International, YFCI. The movement also benefited by promotional publicity in Hearst newspapers and magazines. William Randolph Hearst was uh, an important newspaper man in the, uh, he was a newspaper mogul, I guess you could say. He owned lots of newspapers throughout the United States. And Hearst, although not a Christian, was fascinated by Billy Graham and, you know, just published tons of news stories about his work and his crusades. Large rallies were held at the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles, California from 1949 to 1950. And in his role as evangelist and field representative, Graham toured the U.S. and much of Great Britain and Europe teaching local church leaders how to organize youth rallies. <clears throat> so here are some photographs of um, some of his early work. Uh, on the right, you can see here he is preaching at his first Youth for Christ crusade in September of 47 in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, the picture's kind of dark, but I think you can see, you know, here he's, he's in kind of a dramatic pose. It makes, makes us think of people like Billy Sunday, people who preach in a very dramatic, uh, almost theatrical style. It makes us think of Amy Semple McPherson and other people doing this kind of thing. Although Graham never, you know, had all the theatricality that McPherson had. And uh, the photograph on the left um, shows a huge tent that was erected uh, for a crusade uh, in 1949, uh, where more than 300,000 people attended. So again, this idea of putting up a temporary structure, holding a crusade, maybe it's scheduled for two or three weeks, and then if there's enough crowds and enough money coming in, you can extend it even further. Graham also forged friendships with scores of Christian leaders who would later join his organization or provide critical assistance to his crusades when he visited their cities throughout the world. In 1944, he took over a radio show that had been started by the pastor who had started Youth for Christ. Songs in the Night was due to be canceled uh, because of lack of funding, but uh, 
the members of his church in Western Springs, Illinois, uh, supported Graham to take over this radio program with the church's financial support. So once you have a radio program, you know, TV's not the thing yet, but radio is big. Um, so this is one very effective way that, that Billy Graham is able to extend his reach. As part of the programming for this radio program, Graham recruited the bass baritone singer George Beverly Shea as his director of radio ministry. George Beverly Shea would later serve as the opening act for Billy Graham at his crusades, always singing a solo before Graham would speak. <clears throat> now, has anybody here seen a Billy Graham crusade uh, televised uh, at all? A few have, older folks generally. Um, now, if you, <laughs> well, older than the average in this room. <laughs> well, I, I guess live, if you've seen him live on TV, you're probably, you know, somewhat older. Um, Greg? Yeah. Occasionally they will rerun some of his, and if you go on YouTube or other streaming services, you can find <clears throat> a lot of that. Graham gained further exposure and stature through nationally publicized crusades in Los Angeles, Boston, Washington, and other major cities from 1949 to 52, and through his Hour of Decision radio program, which began in 1950. So, you know, he's really here in the late 40s and early 50s. He's expanding his ministry. Uh, you know, he's doing it personally by traveling to all these places throughout the U.S. and over the, the airwaves through radio. In 1948, in a Modesto, California hotel room, Graham and his evangelistic team established the Modesto Manifesto. <laughs> This was a code of ethics for life and work to protect against accusations of financial, sexual, and power abuse. Now, good on them that they recognized these things could take down the ministry and that they needed to ensure that that would not happen. And this code includes rules for collecting offerings in churches, working only with churches supportive of cooperative evangelism, using official crowd estimates at outdoor events. In other words, they weren't going to inflate their attendance numbers. And a commitment for any team member to never be alone with a woman other than his wife. And this became known as the Billy Graham rule, which you may have heard about. Uh, it was adopted by uh, former Vice President Mike Pence. He adopted the same uh, rule. <clears throat> From the time his ministry began in 1947, Graham conducted more than 400 crusades in 185 countries and territories on six continents. The very first Billy Graham crusade was held September 13th through 21st, 1947 at, at the Civic Auditorium in Grand Rapids, Michigan and was attended by about 6,000 people. So here he is going out on his own. He's not under the umbrella of some other organization. 
but this is a Billy Graham crusade. At the time, he was 28 years old, and his procedure was to rent a large venue, such as a stadium, park, or simply do it on the streets. As the sessions became larger, he arranged groups of up to 5,000 people to sing in a choir. And again, prior to him speaking, George Beverly Shea would come out and do a solo. And this became kind of the standard uh, MO for his crusades. Graham would then preach the gospel and invite people to come forward, similar to how D.L. Moody conducted his evangelistic uh, meetings. Now, such people were called inquirers. So they didn't go so far to say, these people have accepted Christ. Instead, they were viewed as people who were searching, who were looking. And they were given the chance to speak one-on-one -on -one with a counselor to clarify questions and to pray together. The inquirers were often given a copy of the Gospel of John or a Bible study booklet, uh, and also encouraged to connect with a local church. During his crusades, Graham frequently used the altar call song, Just As I Am. Graham also spoke at many events held for college students. Graham spoke at InterVarsity Christian Fellowship's Urbana Student Missions Conference at least nine times from 1948 to 1987. At each Urbana conference, he challenged the thousands of attendees to make a commitment to follow Jesus Christ for the rest of their lives. He often quoted, sorry? Where's Urbana? Urbana, Illinois. He often quoted a six-word phrase that was reportedly written in the Bible of William Whiting Borden, the son of a wealthy silver magnet. No reserves, no retreat, no regrets. Borden had died in Egypt on his way to the mission field. In 1950, Graham founded the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, BGEA, with its headquarters in Minneapolis, Minnesota, later moving to Charlotte, North Carolina. In the 50s, Graham began to integrate his crusades, his US crusades, removing barriers that separated the audience into black and white sections. He warned a white audience, we have been proud and thought we were better than any other race, any other people. Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to stumble into hell because of our pride. Now, this is super radical. He's born and raised in the South. Um, you know, this is prior to when the civil rights movement really gets going. But he begins to recognize that things have to change in the United States. In 1957, Graham's stance towards integration became more publicly shown when he invited two black ministers to serve as members of his New York Crusades Executive Committee. He also invited Martin Luther King Jr., whom he first met during the Montgomery, Alabama bus boycott in 1955, to join him in the pulpit at his 16-week revival in New York City. 16 weeks! Let that sink in, 16 weeks. That's, that's a semester's worth of college. 
where 2.3 million gathered at Madison Square Garden, Yankee Stadium, and Times Square to hear them. As Graham's ministry spread and his crusades attained sizes never before seen in the US or indeed the world, it was inevitable that social and political events would have an impact on his ministry. So uh, here you see two photographs on the left, of course, is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. with Graham. Uh, this photo was taken in the late 1950s. And on the right, you see Graham and President Richard Nixon, 1970. Graham reflected in his autobiography, Just As I Am. Early on, Dr. King and I spoke about his method of using nonviolent demonstrations to bring an end to racial segregation. He urged me to keep doing what I was doing, preaching the gospel to integrated audiences and supporting his goals by example, and not join him in the streets. You stay in the stadiums, Billy, he said, because you will have far more impact on the white establishment there than you would if you marched in the streets. Besides that, you have a constituency that will listen to you, especially among the white people, who may not listen so much to me. But if a leader gets too far out in front of his people, they will lose sight of him and not follow him any longer. I followed his advice. Increasingly, Graham found himself to be a public figure as much as a Christian evangelist. Graham was a lifelong registered member of the Democrat Party. Graham deliberately reached into the secular world as a bridge builder. For example, as an entrepreneur, he built his own pavilion for the 1964 New York World's Fair. He appeared as a guest on a 1969 Woody Allen Allen television special in which he joined the comedian in a witty exchange on theological matters. His fame in ministry brought him in contact with American presidents, beginning with Harry S. Truman. And I will note here, Truman didn't like him a whole lot. <laughs> to each his own, I guess, but... Graham had a personal audience with 12 sitting U.S. presidents, from Truman to Barack Obama. His closest relationship was with Lyndon Johnson, who not only invited Graham to visit the White House private quarters, but would also at times kneel at Johnson's bedside and pray with him whenever the president requested him to do so. Graham once recalled, I have never had many people do that. Um, in addition to his White House visits, Graham visited Johnson at Camp David and occasionally met with the president when he retreated to his private ranch in Stonewall, Texas. Billy Graham had a, a close friendship with Johnny Cash. Here's a photo of them. It's taken in the early 1970s. Uh, and then uh, on the left, you see Graham and President Lyndon Johnson at a White House prayer breakfast in the 1960s. In 1960, he opposed the candidacy of John F. Kennedy, 
fearing that Kennedy, as a Catholic, would be bound to follow the Pope. And I would say here, a lot of Americans were opposed to having a Catholic president for this very reason. Graham was not the only one. Graham worked behind the scenes to encourage influential Protestant ministers to speak out against Kennedy. Uh, Norman Vincent Peale was one of those outspoken Protestant ministers, and later Peale um, you know, got a lot of flack for what he had done. But uh, this is you know, what they, how they viewed it at that time. Graham met with a conference of Protestant ministers in Montreux, Switzerland, to discuss their mobilization of congregations to defeat Kennedy. And again, Norman Vincent Peale was the public face of that, unlike Graham. Some criticized Graham for being too involved with politics and politicians. Graham often drew fire from critics who felt he ought to be bolder in supporting the civil rights movement and later in opposing the war in Vietnam. The normally complimentary Charlotte Observer, a newspaper uh, in North Carolina, noted in 1971 that even some of Graham's fellow Southern Baptists felt that he was too close to the powerful and too fond of the things of the world and have likened him to the prophets of old who told the kings of Israel what they wanted to hear. By the 1980s, Graham realized that his evangelistic efforts could impact the world, not just America. Although he'd been all over the world, he realized it could have a greater impact than, than what they had seen so far. And I, I don't have it noted here in this presentation, but um, he made it a policy not to preach in South Africa because of apartheid, um, and there was a lot of controversy about that. <clears throat> Uh, now, beginning in 1978, virtually every Soviet Russian-controlled country progressively gave him privileges that no other churchman, including the most prominent and politically docile native religious leaders, had ever received. So he was able to go behind the Iron Curtain and preach in communist-controlled Eastern Europe. Graham used these visits to preach, to encourage Christian believers, and to explain to communist leaders that their restriction of religious freedom was counterproductive, hampering diplomatic relations with America. Graham's proudest achievements were two BGA-sponsored conferences in Amsterdam in 1983 and 1986, with a third scheduled for the year 2000. These gatherings, attended by a total of 13,000 on-the-job itinerant evangelists from 174 countries, provided basic instruction in such matters as sermon composition, fundraising, and effective use of films and videotapes. And as a sign of Billy Graham's change-embracing spirit, approximately 500 attendees at the 1986 meeting were women and Pentecostals outnumbered non-Pentecostals. By the early, oh, sorry, it's, okay, there we go. Graham's exhortation and example to the conference attendees was simply, do the work of an evangelist. With the BGEA's instruction, materials, and support, 
Thousands were equipped for the work of evangelism worldwide. On September 22, 1991, Graham held his largest, I should say, single event in North America on the Great Lawn of Manhattan Central Park. Uh, in that single event, uh, city officials estimated that more than 250,000 were in attendance. In 1998, Graham spoke to a crowd of scientists and philosophers at the Technology, Entertainment, and Design Conference, or TED Talks. By the early 2000s, Graham began to limit his travel and engagements due to health issues. By April 2010, Graham was 91 and experiencing substantial vision, hearing, and balance loss when he made a rare public appearance at the rededication of the renovated Billy Graham Library in Charlotte, North Carolina. In 2011, when asked if he would have done things differently, he said he would have spent more time at home with his family, studied more, and preached less. I think that's interesting. Graham died of natural causes on February 21st, 2018, at his home in Montreat, North Carolina, at the age of 99. And I've listed there some sources, uh, some books, and some uh, sources on the internet. Um, one of the most amazing things I think about his ministry, um, you know, you can talk about the number of people he spoke to. You can talk about his worldwide reach. You can talk about his effect uh, in the political and social realms, uh, stepping out of just, you know, religious arenas, so to speak. But I think it's truly amazing. There was never any scandal involving money or sexual abuse um, in his ministry during his lifetime. Another amazing thing about his family is that all of his children, uh, although they went through things that children go through, <laughs> um, all of them uh, are you know, committed Christians today, and many of his grandchildren are committed Christians, and a lot of them are serving actively in various ministry organizations. Uh, so I think that's really amazing when you think about how much he was traveling, that his family was able to stay intact, uh, that the stress and pressures of that kind of ministry did not destroy his family. I think that's every bit as amazing as his ministry itself. Again, this is just, you know, we've just scratched the uh, scratches on the surface about Billy Graham. There's so much more uh, you can read about. Um, if you ever go to North Carolina, there is the Billy Graham Library, and um, I think there's some other buildings around it, and you can tour it, um, and there's exhibits about his life and ministry. Um, so if you're in the Charlotte area, uh, you find yourself there, it might be worth checking out. Any questions or comments?